let's go ahead and jump into John chapter 10. Last week, we looked at an entire chapter. This week, we will only look at about half of one. But this is an interesting passage. It's a passage you've probably heard of or pieces of before, uh, but it is kind of interesting and even a little bit difficult to try to preach because of the way that Jesus says what he says. It's not very linear. He repeats himself on purpose, uh, clarifies what he's talking about, and so on and so forth. Uh, And it also requires a little bit of what I would call pre-information. And the way I want to give you the pre-information has to do with the topics that Jesus brings up here. I'm going to tell you a few things about sheep that I don't know that I knew uh, because that's one of his primary metaphors this week. And then the way the points are going to collect themselves are really going to come under kind of two headings. They will be truths about Jesus and truths about us. Let's talk about these sheep. Uh, The commentary work that I did this week, uh, I found it to be quite funny. Uh, One guy said, uh, I found this one to be quite humorous. You may think it's just ridiculous, but that's okay. I laughed. This guy said that uh, in his mind, sheep were prima facie evidence that the theory of evolution was false because there is no way they could have survived being as dumb as they are. So I think that's, there's a lot of truth in that. And part of what we also learned from the commentaries is it does seem that, bless their hearts, sheep are on the uh, short end of the stick when it comes to academic animal intelligence. Uh, they cannot find food very creatively. Sometimes they will miss good pasture just to stay on the same track that they like to walk. Uh, they are giving to, given to listless wandering. There's some accounts of them even walking straight into an open fire. Not sure about that, but uh, I can relate to that, which is part of where Jesus is going that we'll talk about here soon. But then also there's something that can happen to a sheep that I don't know if it happens to any other animal. Uh, Steve Fisher would know all about this, but it's called being cast that, and this has nothing to do with being in a play or anything either, that basically some sheep get so fat that when they lay down on the ground and try to get comfortable there, if they roll too far, the center of gravity in their fat little body shifts, and then their feet get up off the ground and they start to run in place, which makes their predicament even worse, and then they can roll all the way onto their backs And even though that is humorous to watch, they can actually end up dying from this because it doesn't take very long for them to be out in the heat uh, for nature to kind of take its course. But the reason I'm bringing all of this up is because the Bible is replete with imagery comparing us to sheep. And that is not a bad analogy at all because at the end of the day, one thing that you learn about sheep is that they are completely helpless without a shepherd, completely helpless without a shepherd. And that is the context into which Jesus speaks using this analogy tonight. Now, he also goes much further than that, but let's begin with that in our minds. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought them out all on his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, 
for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee for him, from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. <coughs> so in this little pericope here, and we're going to go uh, much further down to verse 21, but what Jesus is doing here is he is talking about people as sheep, also the, the Israelites that he would have been speaking to there as sheep, and also the people that would have been basically abusing them by their what effectively turns out to be false teaching because it does not embrace him uh, as the Messiah. <coughs> He's comparing them to these uh, thieves and robbers and also the false messiahs that have come before him that he refers to in verse 8. He talks about them in the same way. And so he sets up kind of this imagery that that immediate audience would have understood, hopefully, but they don't, and we'll get into that in a moment. <coughs> and he begins to indict these uh, leaders further in the way that he has done in the previous weeks. But also go back and notice this. <coughs> when he talks about here that the sheep hear his voice and that he calls out uh, his own sheep by name and leads them out, that is very poignant imagery as well because what would have been taking place at this time is the sheep that they would have uh, seen on a regular basis would have been stored basically in what is called a communal uh, sheep pen sheep fold here and a shepherd would have to walk into this huge group of sheep they would have all looked the same to us and he would begin to call them out <coughs> almost in this like sing-song kind of manner and they would somehow respond to him now, this would have been um, a quite miraculous thing because, again, we would look at these sheep. They would all look the same, but they would recognize their shepherd's voice, and they would begin to part almost like the Red Sea of wool, that you would have some go with the right shepherd, and then the rest would stay behind. <coughs> and what he's pointing out there is that he is the shepherd, and his people are the sheep, and the sheep know his voice but they don't get that right away and so he's going to have to use some different imagery and kind of turn this metaphor a little bit further in verse 7 and following but those are the first two principles that we want to take from this section of text jesus is the shepherd and his people are his sheep and jesus knows his sheep and his sheep know his voice now let me also say one other thing here that's uh of particular interest at this time in history it, I wouldn't call this like relational work because you don't really have a human relationship between a shepherd and a sheep at this um, <coughs> since we're talking about animals here but they definitely had a relationship as much as you could with this kind of animal and the fact that that he says that uh, they know his voice that kind of goes both ways because the shepherd also would call these sheep out and name them by particular physical characteristics that they might have. Now, he probably wouldn't say it like this. It would have been something different in the language that he spoke, but the average shepherd in that day might call one sheep long ear or one sheep extra fluffy or one sheep falls down a lot or whatever because it showed <coughs> the kind of relationship that he would have had and the type of care that he would have had and the type of knowledge that he would have had with these particular animals but that being said verse 6 tells us the figure of speech jesus used with them but they did not understand what he was saying to them 
So Jesus said again to them, Truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. Now, verse 8 there I mentioned briefly earlier, but the thought that is here is he's talking about false messiahs that have come before him. But I think he's also talking about these Pharisees and religious leaders that were right there in the midst as well, that they were teaching and the true sheep would not have listened to them. Now, when he says here that he is the door, (coughs) that's our next principle, and that one is of great significance. That is that Jesus is the door that leads to salvation, safety, and satisfaction. One commentator describes it like this. He says, I am the living door. In order to go into the fold, you must go through me. Likewise, to go out to pasture, you must go through me. As the door, I am the protector and I am the provider. When you come in the door, you are not only saved, but you are safe. When you go out through me, you go out to pasture. I am the provider. No one is coming through the door except the one who comes through me. Now let's talk about some of the implications there. This lines up with what we'll see in just a few chapters in John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the doctrine of what you might call the exclusivity of Christ, that Jesus is the only way men and women and boys and girls can be made right with God, enter a relationship with him, and someday get to heaven. So he is the door to salvation in that sense. But he is not simply the door to salvation. He is also the door to safety of all kinds. Because this communal pen that they would have been in here is probably, you know, rocks probably this high or so. And, and when, it, when they didn't have a door in most traditional senses like we would. And most times when we think about sheep herding, it has very, you know, English or Scottish or, or even uh, Southern America kind of uh, language and, and baggage that goes with it. But at this time in history, the door was actually one of two people. It was either the shepherd himself, which is what Jesus is talking about here, or they would hire somebody (coughs) to be the gatekeeper kind of in the shepherd's stead. So when Jesus is talking about being the door, he's literally saying no one is getting in and out of this pen figuratively, spiritually, literally, unless they come through him. So it's not just a salvation sense, there is a safety sense. Nobody can get in and steal those sheep unless they go through Jesus. And we know what Jesus says about the doctrine of eternal security in other places in Scripture, that no one can pluck us or snatch us out of his hand, that once we truly belong to Christ, we belong to him. You can't be more safe spiritually than that. But then also, Think about the context that this was being offered in, that these people had just been listening for for quite some time about uh, all these extra Christian things that have been placed upon the law that God gave. Now they're beginning to understand, hey, we can't really trust these guys that we thought that we could trust. And so in that moment of spiritual panic, in that context of their, their situation kind of decaying, Jesus is saying to me, or saying to them, listen, come to me, 
I will give you salvation. I will give you spiritual safety. And I think there's a really good word for us today in that because you look through any type of social media, you spend five minutes online, you just drive around, sadly, to many of the churches in this community, and you will find people doing all kinds of unhelpful things in the name of Jesus that are far beyond the Bible. Now, does that mean we go around being the theological police? It doesn't. But what we are getting at here is that there will always be people that are alive and well, sadly, that are false teachers to some degree that are preaching some gospel other than salvation through Christ alone and faith alone. And so the, be the best way we can avoid that is to focus on the door himself. That's why in this church, everything goes back to the gospel. Every sermon, Jesus, we somehow get to him, we somehow talk about the gospel. Because what the, the focus that he is wanting us to have here in this passage and throughout the Bible is on him. The entire Bible is about Jesus. We seek him for salvation. We seek him for spiritual safety. And we need to teach and preach and encourage and lead people to Christ in every way that we can. That's how we avoid slipping into the type of legalism that these folks had been inundated by. But that's also how we grow in our faith, and we get stronger, and we see people meet Christ. And I believe the further we go in history, this is exactly what Jude 3 and 4 warns us about. This is not a new problem, but there will be more and more people and more and more false gospels, if you will, pop up to try to lead us away from Christ. And again, the antidote is to go back to the door. Go back to the one that saves us, that protects us, that keeps others' false gospels out, and focus on the Lord Jesus himself. One final note on this. This is partly why having good pastors in a local church is very important. And this is why one day if you move on from refuge, you move to another city or something like that, we want to try to help you as best we can get you connected with another church in a new community. We want to help you find another church that preaches the same gospel that we do, that has people that, that love Jesus and that want to care for you and want to point you to Christ as best they can. Finding a church that focuses on the gospel is not an afterthought after you see if they've got the programs that you want. That needs to be the primary thing. And then we ask some of those other questions. They're important. But what's the most important? Most important question is, are they pointing to Jesus as the door for salvation and for safety? And do they have people that can point you in that direction? Now, the last thing that I want to point out here is that Jesus is the door that also opens to satisfaction as well. Look back at verse 9 because it dovetails again right into what he says in verse 10. I am the door. So he said this twice in two verses, and you know when you see things repeated, it's there for emphasis. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Now, that idea there of pasture is very similar to what you know from uh, Psalm 23. It's very similar from what we know about sheep and shepherds and, and all kinds of livestock here. Pasture is something that they all have to have to eat. <coughs> and it also goes right into verse 10 here. 
when he says here, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So again, in the context immediately here, he's talking about these people that are preaching another gospel. But in verse 10, uh, that certainly applies to our spiritual adversary, the devil as well. Because isn't that exactly what Satan does? He comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. <clears throat> but Jesus offers the complete antithetical alternative, life and life abundant. Now, when we hear that in our day, the immediate thought is often abundant possessions, right? We got a lot of money. We got a nice house. We got a great retirement plan. We got all these wonderful things that, that often come with increased uh, material possessions. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about uh, a spiritual life of abundance. Uh, and it, could it also lead into, you know, uh, extra that you can do other things with? Of course. But the, what he's talking about here is this spiritual, eternal quality of life, which reminds us that Jesus doesn't just save us from hell. He saves us for meaning and purpose and joy in this life. <coughs> I like how uh, Matt, uh, Kent Hughes says it in his commentary. He says it like this. He says, we're not just protected from the destruction of sin. We're given the joy of walking with Jesus. That doesn't mean we constantly frolic in the meadow where life is easy. Jesus doesn't just promise us a trouble-free life, but he promises us a joy that is bigger and lasts longer than our troubles. Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will not fear. Even when we feel like we have armies encamped around us, he spreads out a banquet before us in the sight of those enemies. So part of what Jesus offers us is spiritual and in this life to an appropriate degree satisfaction so that means when we try to pursue ultimate satisfaction in anything other than christ we're trying to dig up the ocean another metaphor we're trying to dig a well where ultimately there is not lasting water that if we seek to make anything other than jesus primary it will always, always, always let us down. Whatever it is that we're truly looking for in life, it is ultimately found in the Lord Jesus. So a couple of application points there on that. If you're digging in a well apart from Christ looking for ultimate satisfaction, cut it out. Because ultimately, it's going to come up dry. Can it satisfy for a short time? It can. But is it going to be lasting satisfaction? It will not be. And on the positive side of that, whatever it is you're looking for, Jesus has it. He is the door. He is the well of living water. He is, what he says here in verse 11 and following, also the good shepherd. And then look how he describes his goodness. <coughs> the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. 
So the principle is this. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Now let's go back and unpack this here. Notice again, it's almost like Jesus is singing a song here. I don't think he was, but the, the, the mnemonic devices that he is using to try to drive this home are not inconsequential. The fact that he says something and then he says something else and then he goes back and he says that again, he is communicating to them the significance of what he's saying and he does it repeatedly with this different kind of imagery. Now here he also contrasts who he is with who these other pharisaical teachers would have been. He essentially calls them hired hands. And he basically says that, that they don't care about the people in the way that he cares about the people. And the illustration that he uses here is that basically when things would get really hard, and let's say the illustrate, we'll just use the illustration that he's using. Guy's out caring for the sheep, somebody else's flock. He's invested to the point that he gets a paycheck, but his life is not worth the life of those sheep. So if a wolf comes, he's leaving them on his own and, they, and he's out of there. And he's saying, in essence, that's what they're doing, but look at what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay down my life for you. <coughs> now, this is also uh, of significance because of the imagery that comes from the Old Testament through a couple of different paths here. Uh, in the Old Testament, God is uh, the true shepherd and is contrasted with unfaithful shepherds who will be judged by him. You see that in Isaiah 40, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, Zechariah 11. You also see David as <coughs> talked about uh, as a good shepherd, so on and so forth, as is Moses. And so Jesus comes along and he picks up both of those mantles, David, Moses, and then he obviously walks in the path of God, the true shepherd. And then he basically says, I'm going to prove it to you in my own blood. I'm going to lay down my life to prove that I am indeed the good shepherd. <coughs> now, there's also a little interesting textual insight here as well. There's two different Greek words that are sometimes rendered good in our English Bibles. One would be agathos, which is good morally and intrinsically. And the other is kalos, which has the meaning beautiful. And sometimes translators will take these and kind of blend them together and that Jesus is basically saying something more like this, that I am the shepherd, the beautiful shepherd. And, and I think that really fits the context of what he's trying to say here. Spurgeon picked up on this as well. He says it like this. He said, there's more good in Jesus, the good shepherd, than you can pack away in a shepherd. He is the good, the great, the chief shepherd, but he is much more. Emblems set forth may be as multiplied as the drops of the morning, but the whole multitude still fail to reflect all of his brightness. Creation is too small a frame in which to hang his likeness. Human thought is too contracted. Human speech is too feeble to set him forth to the full. He is inconceivably above our conceptions, unfetterably above our utterances. So what Spurgeon is picking up on there is exactly right. That he is the good shepherd, but he's even better than that. He's such a good shepherd that we can't even describe truly how good he is. So again, I think the application of that is kind of what it was before. 
if you have access to the real deal, to the best thing that you can find, then why would we fritter away? Why would we waste our time looking for a sense of ultimate anything in anything other than Christ alone? It's a well that ultimately holds no lasting water. But there's more good news here. <coughs> Look at verse 16. It says this, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And what he's talking about here is actually us. He's talking about the Gentiles. Remember, he was speaking to a primarily Jewish audience here. And he's saying there are going to be other people outside of who's standing here. There's going to be other people outside of the nation of Israel that I'm going to choose, and they are going to respond, and they are going to be part of this flock, and it's going to be amazing. There's going to be one flock. There's going to be one shepherd, and I'm going to be that guy. This is the same thing that Paul picks up on is, is what he calls the mystery in the book of Colossians, the fact that Jews and Gentiles would be together after such a history of animus and, and not being able to get along is truly remarkable and miraculous. And Jesus is saying that he will bring them together. So I think the application there is gratitude. That we just simply be thankful that the Lord in his kindness saw fit to bring us in knowing that we had nothing to offer. Now, here in verses 17 and 18, we get one final piece of truth, and then we're going to see how the crowd responded to this at the end. <coughs> but I want to give you the truth up front this time. This is that Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, and he's also the good shepherd who has the authority to take that life up again. 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Clearly he's talking about the resurrection here. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now let's think about all that we've learned over the last few weeks here. What is one note that Jesus has played time and time and time again, seems like almost every week. It's that he has messianic authority, that he's not just some random Johnny-come-lately teacher that's passing by, that's going to fade out like all the others, but he has the authority of God. What's another note that Jesus has been playing in this same song? It's that he has a divine origin, that he has been sent from God. And right here in this little passage, this two little verses here, he plays both of those notes together again, and that is no accident. He is communicating to them time and time and time again, I am the person you've been looking for. I am the one that all the prophets testified about. And I have the thumbprint and the stamp of authority from God, my Father. There's one last thing to notice right there within that as well. Look back in verse 18. It says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. That's significant as well, because think about the last week of Jesus's life, particularly those last couple of days when things are really starting to come apart. When they come to arrest him, they didn't arrest him simply because they had numbers on their side. They arrested him because he allowed them to do so. He could have extinguished the whole thing there if he had wanted to. 
But of course he didn't. You think about the irony of him standing before Herod and Pilate and all, all these other guys and, and uh, the, the last little bit of his life there. All of those things happened because Jesus allowed them to happen. Even when he was being crucified, the same thing. He allowed this story to unfold to secure redemption for us. And even in that, it shows the same thing that we've seen throughout the book, this notion of Jesus' precise timing, Jesus' superintention, his sovereignty over all things, that nothing is happening that is not happening according to his plan. The metaphor I've used before, I will use again. They are playing checkers. Jesus is playing master level chess. And you see it time and time and time again throughout each of these chapters. Now, I want to say that in light of all that, and so there was great rejoicing and a revival broke out. But look at how the story ends right here. And then we'll pick it up again next week and see where it goes from there. But there was division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? And the others said, these are not the words of, who, of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So just like we saw before, and just like we will see again, when Jesus says who he is, it is always met with a variety of responses. There will be some who put their faith and trust in him and who believe and their lives are changed forever. There will be others that can't figure him out. There will be still others that are completely against him. So as we share the gospel and tell the truth about Jesus today, we can't be surprised when we see similar responses. This is the way that it's always been. There's always been a mixed bag of responses to the Lord Jesus. But the question I want to close with tonight, the one that's most important to you personally, is what is your response to Jesus? After being reminded of all the things that we have seen that are true of him tonight, that he is the shepherd and we are his sheep, that he knows his sheep inside and out and his sheep know his voice, that he is the door that leads to salvation, safety, and satisfaction, and that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep and who has the authority to take it up again. What's your response to him tonight? For some, it needs to be that you turn aside from trying to save yourself and you put your faith and trust in this good shepherd and you let him lead you as only he can. If that stirs a chord or strikes a chord within you tonight, that stirs something up in your soul in just a minute when the rest of us take communion, you hold off and let's talk about that. We want to help you meet the good shepherd tonight. For those of us who already know him, what is it that the Lord's saying to you through this? Is it a fresh reminder of his sovereignty over all things and a reminder that you can trust him? Is it a fresh reminder that he really has whatever it is that you're looking for in this life? Safety, security, purpose, meaning, joy. Jesus has it. Or is it something completely different? Whatever it is, let's go before this good shepherd tonight. And let's ask him to speak to us.
to lead us, to guide us as only he can. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are thankful to be reminded of who you are and what you have done for us. To be reminded again that you know us as your sheep. Helpless as we are without you, you know us by name. You know all of our strengths, all of our weaknesses, all of our pain points. And instead of casting us out, it endears us to you and you to us. Lord, we thank you for being that kind of good shepherd. Lord, we thank you that you are the door. That you have opened wide the door of salvation for us through your perfect life, substitutes death, and glorious resurrection. Lord, we pray that as we look to you, that you would further convince us of your goodness. That you would further remind us of all that you've shown us and given us in the Lord Jesus. Lord, the problem is not on your end, it's on our side. Just like these sheep, we get so distracted. We make such a mess. But Lord, in your kindness, you lead us to repentance. Lord, do that for us tonight. Remind us again of your goodness. We pray all this in Jesus' mighty name.